Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were two of the founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson, of course, wrote the Declaration of Independence. John Adams was one of the architects of the of independence itself, of pushing for the, the colonies to declare independence. And Thomas Jefferson was the third U.S. president. John Adams was the second. They were friends and they were enemies and then they were friends again. They both died on the same day in 1826. They both died on the 4th of July, 50 years to the day after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Isn't that creepy? <laughs> or providential, if you want to look at it that way. It's, it's amazing that you, you, we see this, and we're still making a big deal out of it. You better believe they made a big deal out of it back then. If I'm not mistaken, James Monroe, in a later year, also died on July 4th. So just one of those interesting facts. But what's, what's amazing about that, especially if you read the history around that time, is it was the, the mark that a generation had passed, that that revolutionary generation was gone. The leaders and the men that were young men at the time pushing for the revolution were, were gone. They had passed on. And now it was names like Daniel Webster and Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson that would be known and would be, be fought over and venerated as the case may be. It, it had passed on. And while it is rarely so neat as that, the passing of one generation to another is very often marked by a significant moment. You can look back and say that was the time it moved from this generation to that generation. And we have one of those here in Numbers chapter 26. Moses is going to take a second census of the people. This is the book of Numbers after all. This is the second numbering of the people that we have. Because in chapter 25, we saw the final deaths of the wilderness generation as God had promised. So they're going to number the people again after the 40 years have passed and that sinful generation had, had died off. We're also going to see a couple stories in chapter 27 where the children of that generation begin to step up into their place. We're going to see the, the daughters of Zelophehad who are going to uh, negotiate the ability to retain property rights in their father's name. We're going to see Joshua will be anointed in Moses's place, that the new generation is stepping up to take their place. So this is a very significant passage of scripture, even though to us, it looks like just a long list of names. It's important. It's there for a reason. And when you talk about the passing of generations, you know, it, it feels in a lot of ways like we're going through that right now. That there's a lot of tension between the older generations and the younger ones. And that things have, have just changed. I mean, even in the last several years, have just changed from one way of living to another. And as Christians, we look back on previous generations, especially in the church, with mixed feelings. You look back on a guy like Athanasius or Martin Luther or any other hero of the faith, guys like John Wesley and George Whitfield or Pastor Chuck and those guys. And you look back and you're proud and it makes you proud to be in that line. And we sing that song, to, grace, to us may grace be given to follow in their train. But sometimes you look back on a previous generation and you just cringe a little bit. Oh, why did we do that? Why did we burn people at the stake? What was that all about? Why did we, why did we preach like we did about slavery? Why did we do this or that? And, and it, can be, it can be distressing. And you usually find folks that are of one bent or the other. Some people that it was all good and don't tell me different. And folks that can't see a good thing that happened in history. And I mean, that's not just limited to the church. Obviously, we've got folks today that can't see a single redeeming aspect of history, can they? But then others that seem to be willfully blind to the fact that there's an awful lot of stuff that we don't want to imitate from back in the day. 
On the one hand, your heroes are gone. I mean, look at today. It was, it was pretty significant when Billy Graham passed away. I mean, kind of the gold standard for everybody, right? Or when uh, teachers like Adrian Rogers passed on or Jerry Falwell passed on. These were names that everybody knew and everybody kind of by consensus looked to as leaders in the church and they've passed on. And we, we think, man, if only Billy Graham were here, oh, if only A.W. Tozer. Man, Ravenhill needs to preach to these guys, man, but, but they've moved on. But then again, you can look back and you can see how grievous the sins of some of these men were that you feel ashamed sometimes to move on. You look at someone like Ravi Zacharias, who said it's such a marvelous ministry and yet fell so hard and it all came out at the end. And there's other names you could add to that list. But as we're going to see in this story here, because God is with us, we are able to move forward. Especially in our case, even above this one, our generation has the benefit of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the presence of his Holy Spirit, and God is always looking to do a new thing. He's always wanting to do something new. Whether that's in your own life, you can apply this personally. You can apply this nationally, which is how it works in the story here. You can even apply this across all of history. But that there is a fresh start for all those who believe. And the next generation willing to step up and serve the Lord in faith will see his mighty works. So we're going to go through this. Chapter 26 is going to be, uh, we're going to try to go quickly. It's going to be a list of names. I'm going to try to draw out some of the interesting notes as they come. But then when we get to chapter 27, we'll have a few narratives. But I want you to keep that in mind. This list is not just here as a historical record. It is that. But it's signaling that this faithless generation is gone Here's the new one. God is starting fresh. So let's read the first uh, three and a half verses of chapter 26. After the plague, that is the plague where the Midianite and Moabite women seduced the Israelite men to worship their gods, and the Lord sent a plague among them, and Phinehas had to put a stop to it, you remember. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar the priest stood with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward as the Lord commanded Moses. We'll pause right there. We've been following a geographical structure of the book of Numbers. We have three camp sections, starting at Mount Sinai, then moving to Kadesh Barnea, and now we are in the plains of Moab. In between, we had travel sections, and those travel sections is where they really seem to get into an awful lot of trouble. But we're in the last section of, of that outline. We're still on the plains of Moab, which is to the east of the promised land, and they're on the other side of the Jordan. It says opposite Jericho, which that's the first city that they're going to destroy when they move into the promised land. They're camped across the river from it now in land that used to belong, remember, to Sihon, who was the Amorite that had taken uh, some of the Moabite land that they then conquered and took from him. However, there's another structural note here, as I just mentioned, that chapter 26 is in parallel with chapter 1 because these are the two censuses. And the, the language is almost identical. It's not identical because the numbers are different and some of the changes that happen in between can be noticed. Some of the clan names have been dropped or added. I won't be getting into all of that. But it's a powerful transition in this story. 
The generation that saw the exodus, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, that ate the manna, that saw the glory of the Lord at Mount Sinai, that worshiped the golden calf, that rejected the promised land, they're all gone. And God is starting fresh with this new generation. And a reminder to you, this is not every individual of the land of Israel. This is a military census. This is everybody who is 20 years old and older, all the men who can fight, who can go to war. It's, it's almost like the selective service in a way is what they're counting for. So we're going to see some large numbers, but you have to add to that wives, mothers, children. I would imagine old men as well would be on that list. So there are millions of Israelites at this point. But let's take a look at this. They're going to go by tribes, and they're going to go through the tribes. Remember, the tribes camped in groups of three around the tabernacle, and they're going to follow those different groups, starting in verse 4 with Reuben. Let's, let's read it. And this is going to be a similar structure for each one. It's going to give the, the tribe's name, the clan's names, the number, and if there's any historical notes, it'll give those as well. So, the people of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were, verse 5, Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, the sons of Reuben. Of Hanak, the clan of the Hanakites. Of Palu, the clan of the Paluites. By the way, if you're looking for baby names, this is a gold mine for you guys tonight. Of Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites. Of Carmi, the clan of the Carmites. These are the clans of the Reubenites, and those listed were 43,730. And the sons of Palu, Eliab. The sons of Eliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a warning. But the sons of Korah did not die. So each of these paragraphs is going to be about like that. Reuben is a little longer because they're going to go down into some of these clans to identify some figures of note. Reuben had four clans, numbered 43,730. This is down from chapter 1, where they had 46,500 fighting men. This is a 6% decrease. Most of these are going to be more or less static, but there are some radical changes. 6% decrease for the tribe of Reuben. And they focus on Dathan and Abiram, who were from Eliab's clan, because back in chapter 16, they had rebelled with Korah, and the ground had opened up and swallowed them. There actually was a third guy in that group named On, but it seems like he may have repented, because he's only mentioned the first time, and he doesn't show up again. This is when Korah the Levite wanted Moses to step aside. Hey, I can hear from God too. And when they were offering incense in the sanctuary, do you remember fire came out of the incense and, uh, and burned them up? And they took the incense censers and they hammered out a covering for the golden incense altar in the holy place. So that every time the priest went in, he would remember only the priest is to do this. Nevertheless, in verse 11, you read this, the sons of Korah did not die. They did not follow their father in his rebellion which is to their credit. And when we get to the book of Psalms, we're going to see a lot of our Psalms were written by the sons of Korah, second only to David in the book of Psalms. Verse 12, the sons of Simeon, according to their clans, of Nemuel, the clan of the Nemuelites, of Yamin, the clan of the Yamanites, of Yahin, the clan of the Yachinites, of Zerah, the clan of the Zerahites, of Shaul, the clan of the Shaulites. These are the clans of the Simeonites, 22,200. 
Simeon had five clans here, 22,200 fighting men, down from 59,300 in chapter 1. Simeon decreased the most out of any tribe, 63%. Two out of every three fighting men had perished in the wilderness. This seems to be because Zimri, who was the man that Phinehas killed with his mistress or wife, as the case may have been in the last chapter, were from the tribe of Simeon. So perhaps that clan or that tribe was particularly egregious in their, in their sin in that way. We know Zimri was one of the chiefs of the people. But in any case, the Simeonites decreased by 63% over 40 years. Verse 15, the sons of Gad, according to their clans, of Zephon, the clan of the Zephonites, of Hagi, the clan of the Haggites, of Shuni, the clan of the Shunites, of Ozni, the clan of the Oznites, of Eri, the clan of the Erites, of Arod, the clan of the Erodites, of Areli, the clan of the Erelites. These are the clans of the sons of Gad as they were listed, 40,500. All right, so Gad has seven clans here. I noticed this was interesting. Some of the smaller tribes had more clans than others. I'm not quite sure why that is, but you can think about it on your own time. They had 40,500 people. They had also decreased from 45,650, which was an 11% decrease for Gad. So that's the three tribes that were camped to the south of the tabernacle. These were three of Leah's sons, Reuben, of course, and Simeon. Gad was one of the sons of the handmaiden, but he was also Leah's. uh, Leah was his surrogate mother. All right, moving on, verse 19. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. This is back in Genesis. And the sons of Judah, according to their clans, were of Shelah, the clan of the Shelanites, of Perez, the clan of the Perizzites, of Zerah, the clan of the Zerahites. And the sons of Peraz were Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites, of Hamul, the clan of the Hamulites. These are the clans of Judah as they were listed, 76,500 So Judah has its five clans. And notice some of these are sons. Some of these are grandsons. This would probably have been determined as one family grew in size or grew in influence over another. So some of these are grandchildren. Some of them are are just children. But yet five clans, 76,500 people, slightly up from 74,600 fighting men. That's a 3% increase. Not very much. But that means that Judah is still the largest clan, the largest tribe of Israel. It mentions Ur and Onan. You might remember this story from Genesis 38. It's not a very nice story. But they were the husbands of Tamar. God struck them both down. And Judah ended up having an incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law. She was the one that provoked that and concealed her identity. But she ended up having twins by her father-in-law named Perez and Zerah. And so they are part of the clans of Judah. And Judah was camped to the east in a place of honor. Genesis 49, verse 10, uh, Jacob had prophesied that the scepter, the rulership, right, would never depart from Judah. And we can see already that Judah is beginning to be blessed, to grow, and to be uh, more powerful than the other tribes. Verse 23, the sons of Issachar, according to their clans, of Tola, the clan of the Tolites, of Puva, the clan of the Punites, of Yashuv, the clan of the Yashubites, of Shimron, the clan of the Shimronites. These are the clans of Issachar as they were listed, 64,300. Another large tribe, Issachar. They had four clans. This had gone up from 54,400, an 18% increase. So they were, I believe, the second largest clan at this point, except for maybe Manasseh, but we'll see as we go through. Verse 26 
The sons of Zebulun, according to their clans, of Sered, the clan of the Seredites, of Elon, the clan of the Elonites, of Yalil, the clan of the Yalilites. Those are some familiar names, maybe. You've known an Elon in the news recently. Maybe you've heard of Jalil before. I went to school with one anyway. These are the clans of the Zebulunites as they were listed, 60,500. All right, Zebulun, three clans. 60,500 people, up again from 57,400. Again, just a small 5% increase here. I was doing a lot of math today to get these numbers for you. Uh, this completes the eastern group that was camped to the east of the sanctuary. These were all Leah's sons also. These were legitimate sons. And they all prospered during the wandering. And it doesn't specify why, but as the other three all decreased in size, especially Simeon by a lot, these three increased in size. Moving on to verse 28. The sons of Joseph, according to their clans, Manasseh and Ephraim. The sons of Manasseh, of Machir, the clan of the Machirites. And Machir was the father of Gilead. Of Gilead, the clan of the Gileadites. These are the sons of Gilead. Of Yezer, the clan of the Yezerites. Of Helek, the clan of the Helekites. And of Asriel, the clan of the Asrielites. And of Shechem, the clan of the Shechemites. And of Shemidah, the clan of the Shemidites. And of Hefer, the clan of the Heferites. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Machla, Noah, Chagla, Milka, and Tirzah. We'll come back to these ladies in a few minutes. These are the clans of Manasseh, and those listed were 52,700. So I guess Issachar was larger than Manasseh. Remember, Joseph was the oldest son of Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife. You shouldn't have a favorite wife, just have one, and then she's already the favorite. But in any case, because of that, he gave his two sons a double portion. And instead of having the tribe of Joseph, you'll speak of the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim that function like full tribes in the land of Israel. And this is because the Levites are not going to have any inheritance in the land. So when you remove Levi and you double Joseph, you arrive at 12 again. You can see that story in chapter 48. That's when Jacob switched the hands to bless Ephraim more than Manasseh. Now Manasseh is kind of confusing in how many clans it has here. It's hard to tell if he is saying this was a clan and this one, or this guy was just the son of this guy. So it's either five, seven, or eight. You can count on your own. But they numbered 52,700 people. This was the largest increase of any of the tribes, up from 32,200, a 64% increase, the inverse of what happened to Simeon. And again, we'll get to the four daughters of Zelophehad in just a minute, or the five daughters, excuse me. Verse 35, these are the sons of Ephraim, the other son of Joseph, according to their clans of Shuthalah, the clan of the Shuthalites, of Becher, the clan of the Becherites, of Tahan, the clan of the Tahanites, and these are the sons of Shuthala, of Aran, the clan of the Aaronites. These are the clans of the sons of Ephraim as they were listed, 32,500. These are the sons of Joseph according to their clans. Ephraim decreased. Their four clans started out with 40,500 and went down by 8,000 fighting men. That's a 20% decrease. This is interesting because back in chapter 1, Ephraim was listed ahead of Manasseh and was given pride of place on the western side of the tabernacle. But here Manasseh is lifted, listed first, probably because they increased and became more dominant. But over time, Ephraim would gain population. They would gain dominance over the other tribes. And even, in fact, when the northern kingdom would secede under Jeroboam, that country would be called Israel or 
Ephraim, because Ephraim was the dominant tribe in the north, just as Judah was the dominant tribe in the south. Jacob had prophesied this in Genesis 48 when he blessed Ephraim as the firstborn, even though he was secondborn. Joshua was an Ephraimite, the son of Nun, who you are familiar with from the book of Joshua. Verse 38, the sons of Benjamin, according to their clans, of Bela, the clan of the Belaites, of Ashbel, the clan of the Ashbelites, of Ahiram, the clan of the Ahiramites, of Shephupham, there's a good one, the clan of the Shephumites, or Shufamites, <laughs> that's a good one. Oh, and then there's Hufam, the clan of the Hufamites, it's like Dr. Seuss. And the sons of, <laughs> and the sons of Bela were Ard and Naman, of Ard, the clan of the Ardites, of Naman, the clan of the Namites. These are the sons of Benjamin, according to their clans, and those listed were 45,600. Shephupham and Hufam, that's a, that's a wild pair of names right there. So Benjamin had seven clans, numbering 45,600, almost a 10,000 warrior increase from 35,400 in chapter 1, 29%. The tribe of Benjamin, of course, was the other son of Rachel. She died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And uh, Joseph, of course, favored him because he was his full brother. From the tribe of Benjamin is going to come the first king of Israel, Saul will be the king of Israel, of course, and his son Jonathan. They were Benjamites. Also, Paul the Apostle was of the tribe of Benjamin because the Benjaminites is the one tribe that is going to remain loyal to the house of David when the split happens. You see this in 1 Kings chapter 12, that the Judites and the Benjamites are going to go to war together against the northern, northern tribes. So that's the west the three tribes of Rachel's children, her legitimate children, Joseph, Benjamin, but Joseph is divided into Ephraim and Manasseh. Verse 42, these are the sons of Dan, according to the, their clans, of Shuham, the clan of the Shuamites. These are the clans of Dan, according to their clans. All the clans of the Shuamites, as they were listed, 64,400. Dan has one clan listed, so perhaps there was one preeminent family, and then the rest of Dan was not so subdivided. But it's a large clan, 64,400 fighting men, up from 62,700, not much, a 3% increase like Judah. Dan is an interesting tribe in the Bible because Dan slides in and out of the lists, especially towards the end of the Bible. And part of that reason people believe is because in the book of Judges, they're going to commit an incredibly egregious sin. And the Lord will pronounce judgment against them, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Verse 44, the sons of Asher, according to their clans, of Imnah, the clan of the Imnites, of Ishvi, the clan of the Ishvites, of Bariah, the clan of the Bariites, the sons of Bariah, of Heber, the clan of the Heberites, of Malkiel, the clan of the Malkielites, and the name of the daughter of Asher was Sarah. These are the clans of the sons of Asher as they were listed, 53,400. Asher had five clans, 29% increase from chapter one, where they had 41,500. And for some unspecified reason, Sarah, the daughter of Asher, is mentioned. Does not say why she was mentioned, but maybe she was famous. I don't know. Maybe she was functioning like a female judge, similar to Deborah, but she is mentioned. There is another female Asherite who's mentioned later on in the Bible. Luke 2.36 tells us about Anna the prophetess that was in the, the temple waiting for the Messiah to come. She was of the tribe of Asher, which tells us that when the northern kingdom separated from the kingdom of David, her family remained loyal to the Lord and to his temple. So that speaks well of her family and the tribe of Asher. Verse 48, the sons of Naphtali, according to their clans, of Yazil, the clan of the Yazilites, of Guni, the clan of the Gunites, of Yezer, the clan of the Yezerites, of Shilem, the clan of the Shilamites, 
These are the clans of Naphtali according to their clans, and those listed were 45,400. So Naphtali, with its four clans, down, decreased by 15%. They had 53,400 in chapter 1, and they went down to 45,400. And Naphtali will remain an obscure tribe throughout Israel's history. And it's going to be the land of Naphtali that will and other tribes as well, that will become Galilee, where Jesus would come from, although he was, of course, of the tribe of Judah. So that's the northern camp, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali, who were the remaining three sons of the handmaidens, Bilhah and Zilpah, not Rachel or Leah. The other one was Gad, and he was in the south with Reuben. In verse 51, this was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. So we are excluding the Levites here because the Levites did not go to war. They were in charge of the temple and they were still warriors. Remember, their job was to protect the temple and keep people from approaching it. They were kind of the last line of defense. They were the home guard against the temple. And the total number of fighting men is 601,730. This is remarkably close to what we saw in chapter one. In chapter one, we had 603,000 some, only a difference of 1,820 warriors. So even though some tribes were drastically decreasing, others were drastically increasing and a state about the same. This speaks to God's ability to preserve his people. Even as one generation was dying off, God was taking good care of them. And I've talked about this before, but I will just mention all these numbers are, they seem to be round numbers. They seem to be rounded at least to the nearest 10, but we believe these are real numbers. And I, there, there are those that say, oh, they're just made up numbers, they're symbolic. But I think you've been able to see how widely varying these numbers are. And unless you're either just making them up or you're recording real numbers, which is what we believe happened here. So they, they may have been rounded off, but they seem to be real numbers, real uh, reports, a real census. And also, we can add to that their children, their wives, their families, their fathers who perhaps couldn't go off to war. Millions of Israelites. You can imagine now why Midian and Moab were so scared of the children of Israel. Verse 52 now. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. That seems fair. But the land shall be divided by lot. That also seems fair. That's his way of saying, just because you're the big tribe doesn't mean you get to pick the best land. That's going to be casting lots, random, although the Lord, of course, was sovereign of that. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Verse 56, their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. This list that we just read is going to be used in the book of Joshua to divide up the land of Israel. They're going to divide the promised land according to this list in these proportions. And we're going to see Joshua do exactly that. He's going to cast lots for what tract of land each group is going to get. So you can see, again, why this list would have been incredibly relevant in any kind of border dispute between the different tribes of Israel. Because our clan was listed in the book of the law. So we are entitled to this land according to God's word. And this is, of course, one more indication that the wandering is over, the promised land is right over the river, and we're ready to go. Verse 57, we're going to get the Levites here. This was the list of the Levites according to their clans. First, we have the three sons of Levi, if you're taking notes. Of Gershon, the clan of the Gershonites. Of Kohath, the clan of the Kohathites. Of Merari, the clan of the Merarites. 
Now we're going to get the sub-clans of Levi. These are the clans of Levi. The clan of the Libnites, the clan of the Hebronites, the clan of the Machlites, the clan of the Mushites, the clan of the Korahites. And Kohath was the father of Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Yocheved, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt, and she bore to Amram Aaron and Moses and Miriam their sister. And to Aaron were born Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And those listed of the Levites were 23,000, every male from a month old and upward. For they were not listed among the people of Israel because there was no inheritance given to them among the people of Israel. So we number the Levites according to their clans, starting with the three sons of Levi. And then we have sub-clans. Remember, these would have been families that, that became so large that they began to function like their own clan within the tribe. We have the Gershonites. The Gershonites, so, okay, remember, you have the tabernacle in the center. Outside of that, you have a ring of Levites. That's where they camped. And then outside of that was where the other tribes camped. And according to where they camped around the, the tabernacle, there was various honor accorded to them. So the Gershonites camped to the west. That would have been the back of the tabernacle. They were responsible for carrying all of the coverings and the hangings of the tabernacle. All of the cover that went over it. All of the cloth that was hung around the edges to, to build the screen. The Merarites camped to the north. They carried the framing and the structure of the tabernacle. We went in great detail in the book of Exodus over how to build this thing. They carried all of the structural pieces. And the Kohathites camped to the south. They carried the furnishings and the implements of the tabernacle. That would have been the Ark of the Covenant, the bronze laver, the bronze altar, all of those things. Now you have the subclans, and this list is different than what we had in chapter 1. It's not new names, but some of them are dropped. So... We are missing from chapter 1 the tribe of Shimei, who is one of the sons of Gershon. We're missing the tribe of Uziel, which was of the clan of Kohath. Uh, we also see that Izhar is no longer the clan of Izhar. Now it's the clan of Korah. Korah was one of the sons of Izhar. So it seems that of the Izharites, the family of Korah became ascendant to the point it became, if you're an Izharite, you're basically a Korahite. Maybe they only had daughters, who knows? And also we see that Amram is not listed as a clan, although his name is mentioned. Amram was a son of Kohath as well. It mentions Amram because it's reminding us that Aaron and Moses were descended from Kohath. That's the priestly line. They were camped to the east of the tabernacle, which was the, the place of honor right in front of the gate. And if, you, if only the Kohathites are allowed to handle these sacred implements in the tabernacle, it was very important that the priests be Kohathites also. So this is why it's, it's giving us this list here. And it reminds us of Nadab and Abihu, who were burned up before the Lord in Leviticus 10 for offering strange fire on their ordination day. The bummer of a day. Now, Levi was numbered differently than the other tribes. The other tribes was selective service, right? 20 years and older. They are numbering from one month old for sanctuary service. There were 23,000 Levites in this chapter. Back in chapter 1, we had 22,000. So they've increased by not much, just by 1,000 men. And this tells us that the Levit Levitical tribe was very small. If they only had this many men compared to some of these other tribes, it was small. And... Uh, that perhaps that is part of what the Lord did and part of the reason others were willing to accept it. But it's just a, a notable item for you.
And the key from this section is that the Levites were not given an inheritance. Now you talk about the Levites, you either feel like it was unfair against them or unfair in their favor. And some commentaries you read, they, they think God's unfair no matter what he does. And it's kind of frustrating. But on the one hand, the Levites did not get an inheritance. They didn't get their own land when they got to the promised land. But on the other hand, they were to guard the temple, protect it, to participate in the worship, and to be provided for by the tithes of the people. So there was a give and take, just as there is with ministry today. Verse 63 now. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Not one of the previous fighting men from the last census were left alive at this point. These are not the same people. It's not, oh, Judah added some and some, they got some old salts, some old warriors with them. No, they were all gone. They all perished in the wilderness. They had refused to enter the promised land. After everything they did, he forgave them for the golden calf, for grumbling about the manna, for grumbling about the quail, for wanting water from the rock, all of that. But then they get to the promised land and they refuse to go in. And that was the last straw. And God said, you're not going into the promised land. I'm not breaking my covenant because that's impossible. But I'm going to keep it with your kids. Y'all can just hang out here until all of you die. And then I'll go in with your next generation. Psalm 95, verse 10 through 11. Listen to the language that God uses about the generation that had just died off. He says, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the question after this now is, is this new generation going to fulfill the destiny that God had ordained for them? Or are they going to blow it too, like their fathers and mothers did? And that is the question with which every generation must wrestle. We look back, we can see the triumphs of the past. We can also see the failures of the past. And we want to do well in the future. But when we look backwards, it can be intimidating. And I, I know as a card-carrying millennial... I've heard plenty of people cast an awful lot of doubt about my generation to my face. I don't know about your, your folks your age, man. I don't know. It's, uh, the Lord needs to come back before you guys get a hold of anything. And I'm, I'm dead serious. I've heard, oh, if only uh, you're all right, but people your age, I just can't stand. I, was, I used to do a freelance voice acting and, and voiceover stuff. And uh, there was one contract thing that I saw. And the proposal said said, uh, lazy people and millennials need not apply. <laughs> so I applied, but uh, I didn't get the job, but I'm like, yeah, let's just see. But that was, that was funny. But we think about that. That's like, what's going to happen? Is, are we going to be able to live up to the past? Can we do better than the past? But here's the, here's the thing we need to remember. Neither the good of the past or the bad of the past belongs to you. It's not your good. It's not your bad. It's not your success. It's not your failure. There are some people that carry the failure of the past around with them like they did it. It's one thing to be ashamed of what your family did or your ancestors did. It's another thing to walk around with guilt as if you were the one that did it. But then there are some people that they come from somebody that did well and they strut around like they had something to do with that. You ever know somebody whose dad worked real hard to make a lot of money 
and then Junior grows up with money and walks around like he, he made it. Yeah, those guys are tons of fun to be around, aren't they? But you can make that a little more serious, I think. What does this mean? If neither the good nor the past belongs to us, the next generation is capable of either redeeming or ruining everything. Every time. Well, this was such a great thing. It'll last for a thousand generations. Nope, it only takes one. Oh, things are so bad we can never recover. No, it only takes one. One generation. This is why the book of Hebrews applies to Christians the warning about these people that had died in the wilderness. Read chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews. It's all about this. Don't be like those people that missed out on the promise because they lacked faith. You've got to have faith if you want to receive this. The book of Hebrews can be sobering because it, it tells you, you, if you ain't in heaven, buddy, you better keep striving. You better keep going. Until you're there, don't act like you're there. <laughs> and the sober news in this life is that we are not guaranteed a continuation of the blessings of our heroes. Whether that's your national heroes. I mentioned men like Thomas Jefferson, or we can look at people like Martin Luther King or whoever, pick your favorite guy. Well, we're the same people. We're the same nation as them. Yeah, but we're not them and they're not around anymore. So we're not guaranteed a continuation of what they brought us much more in the church. How many churches have tried to coast on the, on the, the wake? Like if you're in the water, the coast on the wake of a great man that passed through how many church buildings they spend all their time talking about what God used to do rather than looking forward to what God's going to do next. Instead, we have to fight to honor that legacy and also to improve upon it. And the good news is that we are not bound by the failures of the villains that came before us. You know, today seems all anybody knows about American history is that the Indians were killed and that slavery happened and segregation and women's rights and all that. And it's like, but that's not all that there is. But not only that, that, that doesn't have to be our future. That we don't have to own that like we did that. We can change course from what happened in the past. And in the church too, or in your family. If you had a rotten dad, you don't have to be a rotten dad. It can stop with you. If you feel like your, your mother was a terrible mother and she made you feel awful about yourself and you see yourself doing that to your kids, you can stop now. That's the wonderful thing about the generations coming and going. Consider how far one nation can swing in a single decade. We usually look at that negatively, right? Like, man, like five years ago, you, you couldn't even talk about this. And now they're shoving it down our throats. We think a lot of this, uh, this transgender stuff, for example. Five years ago, no one was talking about this. Especially not even 10 years ago, people didn't even know what these words meant. And now people are talking about it like it's always been true. And if you don't, you don't get on board with it, you're the weird one. It can swing fast, but it also can be, be good too. God used to flip Israel's wicked kings in a day. He would just come in and send Jehu to execute Jezebel and get rid of all her cronies, and now there's a righteous king on the throne. That's what God is able to do. God can send revival anywhere and turn it all upside down on its head. The future is in the hands of God's people that are going to walk by faith or not. I mean, think about somebody like Hezekiah. Hezekiah, one of the best kings Israel ever had. His dad was Ahaz. Ahaz sacrificed one of Hezekiah's brothers to the god Molech. But Hezekiah decides, we're not doing that. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to tear down the high places. We're going to restore the law to the people. It just flipped in one generation. But then Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, 
He was worse than anybody Judah ever had. He, was, he practiced witchcraft and necromancy, and he worshiped pagan gods in the temple. It just takes one generation. That should sober you, but also excite you. Sober you in saying nothing is free and nothing lasts forever, but excite you in saying nothing lasts forever, especially when God's on our side. So we ought to take heart and strive to live well. Like if they're taking the new list of the new people, I want to stand out as somebody that walked in obedience and faith to the Lord. Amen? Well, we're going to see some folks who did just that in chapter 27. We got through the list of names in pretty good time, I think. So let's get on to chapter 27. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Machla, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest, and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, very formal setting here, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses, verse 5, brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers, uncles. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule, as the Lord commanded Moses." Remember, the context of this is the future allocation of land in Canaan, in the promised land. This next story is going to become quite relevant. And in fact, we're going to see the daughters of Zelophehad again in chapter 36. So we have these, these five women. And I want to make a quick note. Uh, the second son of, of Zelophehad's name is Noah. The guy that built the ark, he had a het at the end of his name. You would have pronounced his name Noach. Noach is how you would have said that. This is a soft H. The letter is hey, and her name would have been Noah. So it is interesting that we pronounce the masculine name Noach, Noah, which is the feminine way of doing it. Of course, it's also the anglicized way, so it's fine. Just a, just a little note I thought you'd, you'd interest, would interest you. But they come to Moses and Eliezer at the tabernacle. This isn't just a, hey, can we talk to you for a minute? This is a very formal meeting. It says all the congregation of there. It could have been that this was like court, like they were coming in for a civil case when this was all gathered. Or maybe they, they called a meeting because this is important. These are the daughters of Zelophehad, who is from the tribe of Manasseh and from the Machirite clan. We read about them just a moment ago. Now, their father had no sons and therefore would be excluded from the inheritance. Now, it is so typical that folks read this story, as I discovered in my study, and immediately want to make some kind of feminist point or other about this. This is not saying that daughters were not permitted to inherit something from their father. What, it, what would have happened is the daughter would have become part of another family. This is why we don't read about Dinah 
Jacob's other daughter anymore because she would have been married and then become part of that other family, right? This is how we still do it in a lot of ways that your name is changed when you're married to your husband. So it's not that there was some sexist thing here, but when they married, they married outside of the family. And so now their father has no sons. So his name is just going to die out. There's going to be no more Zelophehadites in the tribe of Manasseh. So they want to go to Moses and say, can we have an inheritance in his name. And they explain he did not participate in Korah's rebellion, which remember many times in the Bible, if somebody committed a sin, sin that grievous, it says they would have been cut off from their people. And the implication there is they're cut off from the inheritance. It's like being banished. Some people believe execution might even have been a part of that. I'm not quite so sure, but in any case, they say he's not one of those sinners. He died for his own sin, right? He died in the wilderness with the rest of them who refused to go in. But they're asking that his name might live on. And this is a good question. And God tells Moses, yeah, they're right. They should be allowed to do this. And they're going to inherit their father's land if he had no successor from now on. So if this ever happens again, where dad has four daughters and no sons, and there's nobody that can step in and provide him an heir. Remember Leveret marriage? That if a man died without having an heir and his wife was still alive, then his brother would come in and provide an heir for him. Then he says, if, if that can't happen, so this would have been a rather rare case. Uh, he says, then the daughters are to inherit their father's land. And this does not then become the tribe of Tirzah. This is still the tribe of Zelophehad. They're propagating their father's name. So I would imagine their firstborn son or one of their other sons would have gone and take on the name of Zelophehad. This is not a passage about female independence. This passage is about the legacy of the family. That is what this passage is about. Now, does it, is this going far beyond what the other cultures were doing at this time and allowing women to have land? Yeah, of course, but the Bible always does that. What this is about is having a legacy for your family. This was something these ladies cared about, and they were, they were right to. You're going to see this throughout the Bible that not having your, your square piece of land in the promised land was a tragedy. This is why later when in King Ahab and Jezebel are going to take the vineyard from Naboth, it's a grievous sin. That was his family's ancestral land. It's why he wouldn't sell it to them. And they wanted their fathers and their family's name to be preserved. They were good daughters, even though they weren't technically a part of that family anymore. So that's why it's so interesting to me if, if I can just be parenthetical here that a lot of these commentators are like, see, this is one guy said, see here, God is granting rights to women, but later on he's going to reduce those rights because patriarchy and blah, blah, blah. And as if this wasn't God's inspired word, but if, if anything, these women are being given the right to maintain the patriarchy of their father quite literally. So there, again, there's many people, anytime women come up in the Bible, there's always some weird person with a political ax to grind that wants to come and make a strange point. But that's not what it is. It's something much better. You can see a new generation stepping up to lay claim to the future blessings that God had promised them. Whereas their dad was too scared to go in and fight for it, they're already haggling with Moses to make sure that they get their spot, to make sure that their family is represented among the clans of Manasseh. And God honors them for it. So there's three lessons we can learn from these ladies. As, as tonight we're talking about stepping up and moving forward with, with a new generation, we can learn from them these three things. And they all start with C. You're welcome. Number one, they cared about their legacy. 
They cared about it. They cared about the name of their father. They wanted him to be remembered. They wanted the family name to continue. And we likewise cannot cast aside previous generations. That's something that that tyrants do. They want to burn all the history and start over with themselves as if we're the only ones that have ever done it right. No, you can't do that. We need the lessons that they taught us. If you try to say that everything that came before was useless and you've got to start over, you're going to make all the same mistakes over again. And there ought to be, a, a, I mean this positively, there ought to be a pride in where you come from, whatever your culture is. Right? Wherever your, your national origin, whatever, if you're an American like me and your family's been here for 400 years, then you ought to be proud to be an American. Or if you're living in Sudan, be proud that God put you there. Be proud of your heritage and proud of your family. And as Christians, we look back on our heritage and we ought to be proud of it. Do they always get it right? No, but do we always get it right? I mean, come on, what are they going to be saying about us in 100 years? The church in America in 2022, dot, 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 dot. You're like, oh man, I hope they don't think we're all like that. Well, we need to care about our legacy. There's even something to be said about family here too, although that's not the point for tonight. It's really a tragedy, and I do not personally understand uh, people that have no interest in, in perpetuating their family name or in caring about their, their own clan, so to speak. But everyone kind of disperses, and they take the loyalty and the honor and the willingness to stick through hard times, and they apply it to their friends while well, they totally ghost their family and don't want to talk to them anymore. That's backwards. It shouldn't be that way. It teaches us how to love. It teaches us how to be part of something bigger than ourselves. They cared about their legacy. Number two, they conceded past failure. This is important. They didn't try and say, Dad was a good guy. He never did nothing wrong. They say, he died for his own sin. They're not letting anybody put anything extra on him. But they're saying, yeah, Dad Dad should have gone into the promised land. He should have stood up with Joshua and Caleb. It should have been Joshua, Caleb, and Zelophehad standing there and saying, let's go into the promised land. They didn't hide from that, although they did not maximize them. Honoring the past does not mean blindly applauding everything that happened, right? Just because pick your favorite preacher did it doesn't make it right. I, you can pick any, any famous historical church history figure with the exception of Jesus and you can point out something they did wrong, right? People love to point out the things that Martin Luther did. Yeah, we don't approve of all of that. We don't approve of all the things George Whitfield did or Jonathan Edwards or anybody that, that stood up in the pulpit. These are men. We're not to look to men. We're to look to God to concede where they got it wrong without maximizing them. And what I mean by that is without letting somebody come in with an extra biblical standard and saying they didn't do things according to the way we do things now. We go, well, we're not really concerned about that. We're concerned with this right here. We're concerned with God's book. But it also, if we can't agree with a critic when the critic is right, we're not going to come off as, as very wise. So we look with a clear eye. We're determined to do better. They, they don't hate dad, but they know that dad got it wrong, but they still want to honor him and saying, dad, your daughters are going to do you proud. Where you failed, we're going to succeed. That's a great attitude to have. Conceding failure in the past, right? But moving forward. And number three, speaking of moving forward, they claimed future blessings. They insisted on laying claim to what their father couldn't. The best way to honor the past is to succeed where they failed, to be righteous where they sinned, to achieve what they could not achieve. That's the best way to live up to a legacy that came before you. You know, there's some parents that get really antsy when their kids start doing better than they do. 
I mean, I think most dads and most moms want to see their, their kids succeed. They want to see them do better and go on and move forward. But some people get really insecure about that. And I, I, want, I want Johnny to be a good baseball player, but not better than his old dad was. Don't break my records now because that's all that I have, you know. Or moms who get really insecure when their daughters start becoming young and beautiful and they don't look like that anymore. You see these things. But the best way to honor the past is to, to step up, not to... Not to look back and be petty about it or to be miserable about it and say, it's just not, that's just, we can never live that down. We better just do something else and keep our heads down and move on. It's like, no, 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 we're going forward. We're moving on. We want to see what comes next. We want to live in that promised land. Yeah, dad failed, but we won't. God, you know, he doubted God, but, you know, just because dad failed on that day, he did teach us to serve God. So the way we honor him is by doing better than him in the Lord, claiming those future blessings. Many people think that claiming, sticking with the past and honoring the past means you can't move on from the past. You gotta stay right there. Don't say anything new. Don't do anything different. Don't change nothing. Because when it was like this, it was great. Or like superstitious, you know, sports coaches that make sure everybody has to wear the same pair of socks every day because those are your lucky socks. Say, no, the Lord's doing something new. Look at, look at uh, Josiah here. 2 Kings 22, verse 2 did all of these things. He cared about his legacy, he conceded past failure, and he claimed future blessings. It says, Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, walked in all the way of David his father, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. He he was just like his dad, but he was was better than his dad. He didn't turn aside to the right or the left. We don't read about Josiah having some terrible, grievous sin like David did. He wanted to do better than his dad. So he imitated his dad where he was right, and he did better where his dad had failed. We ought to care. We ought to care about our country. I care very deeply about my country. Always have. Or our church. And I don't just mean this church here, but yeah, this church, but the, the church in America. We ought to care about it. Our community around here, our clan, your own family, right? You should care about its legacy. You should care about its past. You should be interested in its future. A family should be, obviously, you living your own life, but you're working to advance the unit forward. Every generation of the church is working to advance the unit forward. A, a generation in, in politics or in Washington or wherever, if all they're interested in is bleeding the world dry while they're alive, that's not going to be good, and their, their children are going to despise their names. It should be about moving on and moving forward. So we've got to step up. There are blessings awaiting us that can only be seized by faith and obedience. And I've shared this before, but when I was looking up my own family history, I found that our, our motto on our coat of arms when we were back in England was it's Latin, non nobis tantum nati, which means we are not born for ourselves alone. Don't you love that? We're not born for ourselves alone. I think we're living in a day where people feel like, well, if, if I take the time to have a family or if I take the time to serve the Lord, that means I won't get to do a bunch of stuff. They came hey, man, it's not all about you. You're not just born for you. You're born for those that came before and those that are coming after. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was, that is, he will die. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. 
Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So now that the census is taken, and we've dealt with the daughters of Zelophehad and, and their, their allocation of land, there's really very little that remains to be done before the conquest. We'll have one more battle. But God tells Moses, your time is just about come, Mo. So he says, climb the mountain of Abarim. Abarim is plural because Abarim is a mountain range. The specific peak on which Mount Moses is going to die is called Mount Nebo. But just as how Mount Sinai is uh, talked about as Mount Horeb sometimes, Horeb was the mountain range, Sinai was the specific peak. Abarim is the range, Nebo is the specific peak. It's not a contradiction in your Bible. But basically he says, climb up the mountain and die, Moses. I'm ready to go in with the new guys. We're ready to roll and he struck the rock at Meribah. Remember that? He said, speak to the rock. God was not upset with the people, but Moses acted like he was and whacked the rock a couple times. And in chapter 20, verse 12, Moses lost his place in the promised land. But he's still concerned for the fate of Israel. And he says, God, without me, what are they going to do? Raise up another leader like himself, he's asking. And Jesus would have a similar heart, right? He would have compassion for the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The word pastor you can hear it sounds like the word pasture means shepherd. God gives shepherds to his people. And it could be that Moses did, just didn't trust the elders of the people, but God does seem to approve of this here, and, and Joshua was chosen. We've seen Joshua several times already. In Exodus 17.10, he led the Israelites into battle against the Amalekites. In Exodus 24.13, he went up on Mount Sinai with Moses, not all the way, but he was up there. In Exodus 33, 11, we read that he spent all his time praying in the tent of meeting. In Numbers eleven twenty eight, 28, we see him attending Moses and having a conversation with him. He was with him a lot, as we get the idea. And in chapter 13, verse 16, of course, he was one of the 12 spies. He was one of only two faithful spies that came back and said, let's go into the land. So the point being, he's well prepared for this job. He's led battles, he's led an administration, he's followed Moses around, he knows how to pray, and he exercised faith when everybody else doubted. That's a perfect leader. And it says the Spirit is in him. The Holy Spirit is already dwelling within Joshua. And so Moses ordains him before Eleazar the priest at the tabernacle. He laid his hands on him. This is still, we still do this to this day. The New Testament talks about Christians laying hands on the elders that they're ordaining. It comes from this. And Joshua, says, was given some of his authority. If you read closely, you can tell Joshua's authority, as great as it was, was inferior to that of Moses. He had some of his authority. And unlike Moses, Joshua was to go to Eleazar, who would inquire before the Lord about, from the Urim and the Thummim, which were ways of casting lots that the priests had. 
It wasn't until much later that another prophet like Moses would arise, and that, of course, was Jesus. We'll talk about that in Deuteronomy. So now the only ones from that previous generation left are Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, but Moses' time is drawing short. And this is the hardest part of generations passing. How do we fill the shoes of great heroes like that? I love, as I said, reading history. And there are just some men that they stride across history like giants. You read the history of World War II, and you see what's going on with Winston Churchill. And it's like, why in the world did not everybody just do what he said? It was so obvious he knew what he was doing. Or uh, you look back in the revolution, right? Guys like George Washington, the perfect man at the perfect time. Church history is full of such men. But when they pass on, very often it seems that you'll enter a period of lesser men, lesser heroes. So how are we supposed to do that? When we see guys, as I mentioned, like Billy Graham that have passed on, how are we supposed to follow that? Pastor Chuck is gone. How are we supposed to follow that in Calvary Chapel? Well, the answer is that success in spiritual things is not dependent upon men. It's dependent upon God. Those men were effective because they served God and only as effective as they served God and God has not changed. You can know God as much or more as any of these men and you can have success greater than even they had. I won't read it for time's sake, but in 1 Kings 3, when Solomon was asked from the Lord, you give me anything, you ask for one blessing for your kingdom and I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, I know I'm nothing like my dad, David. So God, you've got to give me wisdom because I don't know what I'm doing here. And God says, I love that. You know what? I'm not only going to give you that. I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you all the other stuff that you might have asked for. Consider Elisha. When Elijah was about to be taken up to heaven, he asked for a double portion of the spirit. Why? Because he was greedy? No, I'm half the man you are, Elijah. I need double portion. As lonely as we might be when great leaders pass on or when great leaders fail, you got to remember that it's God who matters. And we're not all called to step up like Joshua did, but if you are in the situation that needs help, that needs leadership, that needs work, that needs the voice of God, you've got to be the one to step up and be like Joshua and Caleb and the daughters of Zelophehad and stake your claim in God's promised land. God loves us to remember old stories, but God is always interested in telling new stories. And that's a comforting thought for you and me. Because we look back on, man, I wish it could be like this. And God goes, why do you want it like that? Why don't we do something for you? Let's, let's get some new wine. That's why the old wineskins, Matthew 9, 17, they break because they can't handle what God's about to do. Because they're always looking backwards like the Pharisees were. Don't be intimidated when somebody that you're used to taking charge is no longer there. You've got to speak up. You've got to step out. You've got to grow up. Man, this is your time. Step up and do it and trust that God is with you. The passing of the generations. I don't believe that God is done with this generation. I am not one of those folks that believe we are under the severest judgment of God and the only thing left is the rapture. I'm not permitted to believe that biblically. I'm told to occupy until he comes. And until he comes, evil is being restrained And the gates of hell will not prevail. As bad as things have gotten, it only takes one generation to turn things around. One generation submitted to the God who cannot be stopped when he determines to to intervene, they can't be stopped either. 
So we've got to commit ourselves to knowing him like Joshua did, learning his ways, learning his voice, so that we're ready. You go out with as much influence as you are given and claim that promised land in faith. I'm not talking about a new Mercedes. I'm talking about this relationship is going to be lived according to the scriptures and according to God's will. This messed up toxic thing at work is not going to continue on my watch. I'm not going to allow laws like this to be passed without something being done or said about it. Not while I'm here. Because Jesus Christ, whose name was also Joshua, by the way, it means salvation, has died and risen again. He's atoned for sin. And we've been welcomed into God's favor. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us, guiding us, and empowering us every step of the way. So yes, this may be a dark generation, but y'all, it's my generation. And it's yours too. So let's move forward rather than, than getting stuck looking backwards.